Hello, everyone. This is John Drummond here, host of the TNT show. Now, as you know, most TNT shows go out live. This is an exception. And it's an exception for a very, very good reason indeed. We're going to be talking in a couple of seconds to Martin Keatings, who is heading up the Forward as One group, as you may recall, from uh, a time that uh, Martin was uh, our guest uh, some months ago on the TNT show. But there have been some fantastic and interesting developments uh, since then, and, and in particular in the last couple of weeks or so. So what we decided to do was to ask Martin to come back and do this special. Now, obviously, because it's not a recording and not live, you won't be able to ask any questions. So you have to trust me to try and think of the right questions on your behalf. But I suspect that what Martin has to tell us in and of itself, without necessarily any embellishments, will be crucial and essential to the independence process. So I'm going to start by asking Martin, please, Martin, could you give us a quick, or not so quick, whatever you feel is appropriate, a recap of where you are now, what has gone before, and then if you could tell us what's happening right now, please. Sure. Well, in a nutshell, uh, we started off at the tail end of last year um, by seeking a legal opinion from uh, Aidan O'Neill, who's a QC, well-known QC, excellent legal mind. Uh, and we instructed him through our legal counsel of Balfour Manson. And the question was quite simple. Is it or is it not legal for the Scottish Parliament to legislate for a second referendum without needing the permission of Westminster? Or as we phrase it, the constitutionality of the Scottish Parliament legislating for a second referendum uh, without an order in council under Section 30 of the Scotland Act. Aidan prepared a comprehensive legal opinion and uh, that came back. There was very good arguments for the Scottish Parliament being able to legislate for its own referendum without Westminster effectively getting a say. A point of interest, how, how did you fund it? I mean, because legal counsel isn't cheap, particularly you've got quality people like the guy you just talked about, Aidan. Where did the money come from to do all of this? Are you preventing it yourself or how is it being done? The overall case itself is crowdfunded. The initial advice that I saw was off the it was off my own back um so i took a risk on that and then there was a crowd fund and the crowd fund has then effectively paid for it and we've had two rounds of crowdfunding because it's a very very expensive proposition it's uh legal action always is especially when you're talking about the supreme courts of scotland uh the court session so uh, it's a big legal scot and we've been able to raise and told uh, 100, sorry, it was 40 odd thousand in the first run and just shy of 150 in the second run. So that combined has given us quite a big war chest. So the legal opinion was, um, was sought. Uh, we got that legal opinion and we put that to the UK government and we dared them to prove us wrong. And from that point, uh, they came back and says, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. You know, that sort of argument. So at that point, a, a, a dispute, so to speak, existed. We believed quite reasonably the Scottish Parliament doesn't require consent. The UK government obviously disagrees. At that point, we then filed with the court. And that started the, the ball rolling. And that happened in, back in March. Okay. And since then, it's been procedural, procedural, procedural matters. And I've kind of had my, I, w- I was on the show last time, I was able to tell some things and I was also prevented from talking about other things um, because in the initial stages, 
the submissions between the parties until they're finalised and what's called the closed records are very much confidential. We respected that. One of the defenders, unfortunately, didn't because, as we all know, there was a leak to the press during that time uh, with certain things that the Scottish government had said, uh, which were reported in several outlets. Now that all these items have been stacked together in the closed record and uh, everything's proceeding, I can talk about it freely now and I can talk about the substance and everything that's going on. Please you know, do. Tell us what you couldn't tell us before. Well, originally, everybody was working under the assumption, and I have to apologise for everybody, to everybody on this. Um, I know that you all felt, oh, the UK government is going to vigorously defend this and vigorously attack this. But what's actually transpired is that the... Scottish government, unfortunately, has caused quite a few headaches uh, over the last number of months in terms of slowing it down. But in actual fact, the Advocate General who represents the UK government hasn't actually really responded to the substance of the complaint, or should I say the, the summons that we put forward, the argument that we put forward. They've not really responded to that, and they've not, you know, they've not come back and says, Apart from, no, we, it's not within the remit of the Scottish Parliament. That's basically all they've said. But they've not advanced any arguments against what we've said. Instead, their entire focus has been on trying to get it transferred to another mode procedure within the court to have it kicked. Trying to slow it down, trying to stop it, trying to get it kicked out, trying to get it dismissed. The substantive arguments in the overarching case, they've not bothered to really address. Why do you think that is, Martin? <laughs> well, we've actually asked for what's called an order de plano, which effectively means unarguable, uh, a, a summary uh, judgment in our favour because the other side hasn't argued anything. So what uh, the reason we're asking for that is because we believe it is unarguable. Our position is strong. We have stated categorically it is within the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament to have a second referendum on independence and we put it to the UK government and dared them to, to prove otherwise. Yeah. Uh, and we believe that they simply can't. <laughs> you know, the position is unarguable. Uh, and certainly the submissions that they've put forward, which are all a list of, it should be dismissed for this reason, it should be dismissed for this reason, it should be dismissed for this reason. All of those are just bluster. They actually make in the overarching complaint, they actually, they're not arguing against what we said in the original opinion way back in December, January. So To the layperson, that will sound astonishing because people who don't know much about constitutions or legal matters will be thinking, hold on a second, they must have a huge arsenal of arguments that they can bring to the table. Are, are they simply keeping their powder dry or do you feel that they genuinely do not have a case I mean, I take it that's why you've instigated the arrangements you just mentioned. Their opinion um, that they've put forward are things like um, what they call the pleas in law, which are effectively what they ask the court to do. The first, there's, uh, I believe it's seven or nine pleas in law for the, for the Advocate General, which is the UK Government's Council. And the first three are, it's academic, it's hypothetical, yeah. it's premature. Yeah. Now. Uh, you know, for us to ask this question. On academic, 
the reason they say it's academic is because there's no bill currently pending before the Scottish Parliament for yeah. a referendum on independence. Well, the Scottish National Party have announced that a draft bill is coming forward. So it's no longer academic. Right. Um, it's premature. Well, we've been told that this so-called draft bill is supposed to come forward in March. So, yeah. well, it's not premature now because we're merely four months away from that yeah. hearing. And we're less than six months away from the next Scottish elections. And the prime part of that is going to be uh, surrounding uh, the referendum. Hypothetical, which is my personal favourite one. Nobody at this point can argue that it's hypothetical. So straight away, there's the first three arguments that the UK government have advanced to try and have this kicked out. Um, so it's, it's really been, a, it's been more of a fight to get... The strategy has been quite simple. I have to admit, I'm extremely angry at the Scottish government about this. A lot of work by the Scottish government over the last number of months has been to deliberately delay and try and have this case kicked out. And I understand, and I have to say this for everybody that watches this, I understand there are many of you out there sitting there saying, oh, the, the Scottish National have some big master plan that they're just not telling anybody. And I have to say to you, and I don't like doing it because it really bursts the bubble, so to speak, with hopes. That's just complacent thinking. It is really, really, really important that SNP members get it through their head that now is the time they should be applying pressure to their elected representatives and applying pressure to their party to push forward with independence. And I can't stress that. To do anything else is just to be complacent. And there's a very good reason to say that. The Scottish we invited the Scottish government into these proceedings. We started with the summons, and the summons listed three defenders. The first defender was the Advocate General. That's the UK government. So that's self-explanatory. The next one was the Lord Advocate. And the reason we invited the Lord Advocate is because he would represent the Scottish Parliament. Separately, we invited the Scottish ministers. Now, that's really important. We invited the Scottish ministers separately, as in Nicola Sturgeon and her cabinet, the Scottish National Party cabinet. We invited them separately from the Scottish Parliament in order to ensure that there was no conflict of interest. Because the separation of powers dictates, although the Lord Advocate is a member of the Scottish cabinet, while at the same time representing the Scottish Parliament, it's not appropriate for him to be arguing for both parties. And the reason it's not appropriate is because what Parliament wants to advance and what the Scottish Government wants to advance are, a lot of the time, not exactly the same thing. They don't always match up. But in the initial stages, the Scottish Government decided, oh, we'll just let the Lord Advocate represent us as well. Now, yeah. I could go on a round down and say, oh, the, the, the complete arrogance of the Scottish Government and some of the representations like making statements like it's not for the pursuer to stand in the shoes of parliamentarians was one statement that was made on their behalf. And I could say that that is completely unacceptable and they knew what they were doing, but I highly suspect they didn't. Why I think is that the Scottish government didn't take enough interest in the subject. They were perhaps a little bit complacent. They said to the Lord Advocate, ah, you just represent us. This is just Joe Bloggs. There's just that pleb from Dunfermline. You know, that'll be that. You know, we'll get this washed out. It'll not be an issue. As things started to get more severe and then there was the leak and those comments were released to the public, I think at that point the Scottish government then looked back at what actually be, what arguments had been adv advanced in their name, shall we say, and panicked and that's when they dropped out. 
But the Scottish government's interventions from the start were, they joined in, then they asked for a three-month delay, and we had to argue against that. Then they tried to have it transferred to a different procedure in order to have it kicked. And then uh, when we opposed that, on the very last day they decided to drop it, at which point they asked us to assume our own costs, not just in that, but also in the preceding uh, motion that they made as well. And we began to realise at that point, wait a minute, what's happening here is the Scottish government are just trying to sling motion after motion after motion to deplete the war chest and also to try and have this kicked. And that was really, at that point, you have to remember that there's a lot of correspondence going back and forward as well. So there's a, with these legal matters, there's a lot of conversations. Uh, there's a lot that I can't discuss, but there, there's a lot of these conversations. So there's a lot more context. I've, I've heard senior SNP people quoted as saying, what you're doing is dangerous because let's assume, Jason, that you lose, then effectively you put the case of independence back considerably. Let me answer that plain, and I'm glad you really brought. I'm really glad you brought that up, John. I'm going to put this on the line, uh, and I'm actually going to call out the MSPs and the MPs that have made statements like that. That this is really dangerous for the independence movement. It's not, and the reason it's not is because it's exactly the same fight that the Scottish National Party would have to have in a number of months' time anyway, and begin. But it's going to take them a year and a half, two years to have that same fight. And the reason for it is quite simple. Everybody's heard the term Section 30, or uh, Section 30 order. A lot of people don't realise that Section 30 refers to Section 30 of the Scotland Act 1998. That is the, the act of the UK Parliament that brought the Scottish Parliament into being. It is yeah. effectively the rule book on how Holyrood works and how devolution works. But there's a little known part, there's a little known section just after it called Section 31. Yeah. Section 31 talks about bills and how they are advanced in the Scottish Parliament. The first paragraph of that talks about a declaration that a person putting a bill forward has to make yeah. uh, to Parliament that it is competent for them to put that bill forward. Okay. So say I'll just pick the first person, John Swinney. John Swinney. It creates a bill and he wants to put it forward. As a person that's responsible for that bill, he has to make a declaration that is within the competency of the Scottish Parliament to pass yep. that bill. The next paragraph states that the presiding officer needs to make a similar declaration that he believes it to be within the yep. competency of the Scottish Parliament. And if you all recall, we go back to the continuity bill, the one that Westminster kind of screwed the Scottish Government on, the reason that that ended up in court was because the presiding officer stated that he believed that it might not be within the competency of the Scottish Parliament to pass that continuity yeah. bill. And that's why it ended up there. Now, the reason I've gone into this technical detail about these declarations that need to be made is because on the day that it was to come out in the paper that this it's not for this, these 7,000 peoples that have crowdfunded this to stand in the shoes of parliamentarians. The day that that was due to come out in the press, four hours later after it was published, Nicola Sturgeon stood up in the chamber at Holyrood and announced that she was bringing forward a draft bill for an independence referendum. And everybody went, wow, isn't that brilliant? I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but a draft bill is not a bill. 
is not a bill until it is physically put to the floor of Holyrood for the MSPs to vote on it. And then once it passes, it becomes an act. She is not beholden to anybody on that bill whatsoever because it is a draft bill. The problem we now have is that when that bill is put forward to actually be passed into law, she is going to have to make, the Scottish National Party will have to make a declaration saying that that bill is competent to be passed by the Scottish Parliament. The presiding officer will have to make the same declaration. Now, the Scottish government at no point have in the last 22 years have tried to actually answer the question of whether the Scottish Parliament can legislate for a referendum without a Section 30 order. At no point in the last 22 years have they been able to do that or, or have they even tried to do that. So when she goes to try and advance that bill, because she's not got that clarification, the UK government are immediately going to challenge it and what's going to happen, they're going to end up in a court case which is exactly the same as the one we're having right now. The only difference is, because we're having it now, we've already got a year and a half head start. As far as I'm concerned, the Scottish National Party should have done this two years ago, and they didn't. Some folks might be slightly confused about how it was possible to have a referendum back in 2014 without this clarification. Well, that's because the, that, that was because uh, Alex Salmond, uh, as First Minister, um, managed to leverage David Cameron into actually passing a Section 30 order. And the only reason that Alex was able to really do that was because the polls showed that there was a likelihood that we were going to lose. Because yeah. we were way down, when we first started, we were way down in 20s and 30%. Yeah. It was only in the last days that Westminster panicked. But yeah. they allowed that to happen because... Um, because, because simply they, they believed they were going to win. Now we have, what, 12 or 13 polls in a row that say we're going to win, and we've got Boris Johnson, it's a whole different kettle of fish. And what I would say, back in 2014 as well, it wasn't just the fact that uh, they believed they were going to win. It was also really a case of, at that time, the likes of Kenny McCaskill and other people in the cabinet believed that we could call a referendum as well at that time without permission from Westminster. So there was very much that if you don't do it, we're going to go ahead and do it ourselves anyway. So, uh, you know, it was a different set, a different time, a different set of circumstances. But the, the, there's many in the Scottish National Party that have been pretty quiet on the subject, have advocated that we could, exactly what we've been advocating since, you know, for, for years as well, and which we have a legal p opinion from in January. To, to advance this case. But Section 30 has never had an authoritative decision by a court anywhere. It is completely ambiguous. So nobody knows one way or the other. We are choosing now to sell that completely. Is it or is it not? We so, believe it is. Which sounds straightforward. So why are so many senior people in the SNP opposed to what you're doing? Why do they think it's dangerous? You know... When it comes to the danger, and I'll be brutally honest with you, when it comes to the danger here, there is none because it's going to be an argument that we'd have to have anyway. Any any referendum that happens without a Section 30 order is a referendum without a Section 30 order would require this type of legal fight. 
It's really as simple as that. There is no downside. Because even if we were to lose and touch wood, we, we won't because we've got a very strong position here. But even if we were to lose, we would still know at that point where to deploy our resources. We knew we would know which avenues are closed off to us so we could then focus all of our resources on another methodology. But the one thing that is never told by the high agents in the SNP is if we lose, what I have to say is we're, we're trying to advance the position that is within the competence of the Scottish Parliament to hold a referendum on independence without consent. And this is the important bit. Within the law as it currently stands. Right. And there's a reason that's very, very important to say. If we win, then it shows once and for all that it is with, it, within the law as it stands legal for Scotland to hold a referendum without getting permission from Westminster. But if we lose, what it does is it shows that UK law is insufficient. UK law itself is against co uh, covenants and conventions of treaties that the UK has signed up for, including things like the United Nations Convention on Civil and Political Rights. Yeah. The right to self-determination is so important that they made it the very first article in that document. Yeah. It's enshrined in, UN, in the UN Charter. Now, as you know, there's been considerable opposition among senior figures in the SNP. Uh -huh. Why do you think they regard it as dangerous? Because it's one thing to think, well, that this is a nuisance, it's, a, it's a, a piece of silliness perhaps, but why could it be dangerous? Okay. You know, that's not, I shrug the shoulders and that might look like I'm being a bit sarcastic or thing, but nothing. And that's not my opinion, by the way. That's the opinion of some of the top legal minds in the country. The only thing we can see is it's either sheer hubris or it's just a case I don't want people playing in the paddling pool. That's the only, only explanation for it. You are, bless your cotton socks, you're in very murky waters. In the, there's a strange irony here. I suspect the only reason, the main reason that the 2014 referendum took place is because the UK has no written constitution of the kind that most countries would recognise. So yep. what that means is that two guys, literally two guys, Messrs Salmond and Cameron can get together in a less than smoke-filled room and simply say, you know something, I'm up for this if you are. And they can walk away with, with, with yeah. some of which most countries would be regarded as grossly unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, in Spain, you couldn't do this because the first article, as I understand it, of the Spanish constitution says that the integrity of the Spanish state is paramount. You can't modify yeah. it or change it in any way, shape or form. Because that uh, came out of Francoism, so... Yeah, exactly, know, so. which is what you'd expect. Here in the UK, you know, if you want to find out what the constitution is, you have to hire someone. And even they will come up with a whole bunch of arguments which are then confounded by another legal view. So, yeah. I mean, in many respects, you're doing the only practical thing that you can do when there is no written constitution. You have to say to a bunch of people who ought to be in a position to unscramble some of this stuff, yeah. what do you think? Now, it shouldn't be necessary, frankly, because it should be written down in a piece of paper. But it comes to me, what that brings me to is this fundamental point. You said within the law. I noticed you made that qualifier. And you're a bright guy, so you, you don't use words loosely. So within the law, presumably that it is then open to the, the British government to institute a constitutional lock on this. 
if you win, for example, let's say, let's say mm-hmm. that you're successful. Yeah. Could they not simply, at Westminster, pass a law that says uh, that decision that we now refuse to accept and the courts are obliged? This is, where, this is where getting the arguments out of the way now rather than waiting until the bill goes to the floor comes in. If the bill goes okay. to the floor and the UK government challenges it, then the UK government will do exactly what they did with the continuity bill while it's being fought in court they will modify primary legislation at Westminster to to bring it out of competency. However, if we do the argument now, then if the UK government tries to pass law, then the shoe's on the other foot. The Scottish government gets the opportunity to challenge it, providing they have been fast enough in putting even a placeholder bill through or a placeholder document through. Bear in mind, if they put a bill forward after, say we get a win and then they advance a bill, they can get it through straight away because the UK government has nothing to contest because the court's already ruled that such a bill would be competent. So if the UK government then tries to pass a law which would undermine that bill, well, you know the rule under uh, when it comes to constitutional matters, powers that are legislated for at Holyrood are, as far as the UK government, they're not concerned, they're not allowed to touch it. But the courts, on several occasions, courts have made it clear that they... Uh, particularly in that case uh, with the continuity bill, they've made it clear that they don't like the idea of the UK government deliberately trying to modify laws at Westminster in order to undermine bills that are being passed at Hollywood. So, you know, it puts us in a strong, it put, certainly puts Scotland in a stronger position if we get this argument out of the way now with relation to, you know, wrangles that could happen later on. I think that makes sense, it seems to me. But of course, anyone watching this who feels that what Martin is saying, uh, and which I appear to be agreeing with, they, they want to challenge that, then they're free to come on the show, and, and that's to be encouraged. Well, that's the thing. We've not hidden anything. Nothing at all. I mean, uh, it was uh, Ian Blackford was interviewed the other day. In fact, he was actually asked about this case, uh, and he deliberately deflected. Uh, he did not answer the question whatsoever. Um, you could see the, the, as one pundit referred to it as a, the cognitive distance going on in his head at the time when, you know, when he was asked that question. For our part, we're completely open and honest about it. We've published every single document to do with the case, so people are free to peruse it and free to raise their own, uh, you know, their own questions about it. And I have tried my best because it's a very complex subject, a set of subject matter, to answer as many questions as I can. And I will continue doing so because you're, you're absolutely right. Power devolved is power retained. That's the <laughs> phrase I was looking for. <laughs> Thank you for that. What we may find is that that will be exercised in its rawest form when the next referendum is proposed. Because, I mean, I've interviewed lots of people on the other side of the independence debate on the TNT show. And almost to a man and a woman, their view is that the reason that, that the present London government is opposed to a referendum is because they are absolutely terrified they're going to lose it. Uh, so therefore, the only way to avoid losing a referendum is to make sure one never happens. And then you're copper bottom then. Politically, of course, you're into the biggest mayor's nest you can ever imagine constitutionally. But it seems to me what tends to, if we go back over history and look at other movements of secession, the United States, et cetera, et cetera, the winner tends to be the group that's assertive. I.e., if you're assertive, and you require the other guy to come onto your turf, the likelihood is that your arguments will be seen to be more convincing. I think if you're in any way reluctant, then that reluctance is seized upon and manipulated. 
that, that's a purely historical perspective. It's nothing to do necessarily with this particular case. I would say it's accurate. I would say it's 100% accurate, yeah. So you've been successful in moving the process along, and it's a great tribute to to you guys. I mean, this is it's a great achievement, because if things aren't clear, somebody has to try and clarify them, I mean, obviously, if you, if you want to you want to move on. So just to summarise where we are just now, where would you say we are right now with, with the case? Right, right at this moment, um, well, we had one hearing which was on a protected expenses order, but we didn't get the protected expenses order. But what we did get was a victory with one of the judges saying that um, it had a good chance of success. Um, the previous hearing that we just had uh, at the start of November was specifically to do with it was called what's called the by order rule hearing. Uh, it was to do with further procedure. The UK government wanted one to be done one way. The, the Lord Advocate wanted it to be done another way. The Scottish government had jumped ship uh, and wanted it done another way. And we had our preference was a full hearing of all the matters to put them to the judges. That hearing, uh, basically the different position for the Lord Advocate and the, the UK government, the, the Advocate General, um, was that they wanted each of the different pleas, the different matters, a little hearing, a little hearing, a little hearing, a little hearing. And then if we get make it past all those little hearings, then we'll have the big hearing. But we argued, no, we want everything argued at the same time, on the same day, over a two-day block. No if, buts, or maybes. The reason they were saying to have little hearings is because each one of those hearings requires preparation, cost, resources, time, money. So that basically increases the work from one-fold to five-fold. Whereas what we were doing is we want everything heard together. Uh, and Lady Carmichael ruled in our favour. Um, so it's game on now. There'll be no more daft little procedures here, there, or, or trying to disassemble everything and argue it at a better time. They're effectively a legal quagmire. We are going to a two-day hearing period. To expedite that process, there are currently uh, arguments, written arguments being exchanged as well. So uh, we write to them, they then write up and back, and it's going to go on like that for a number of weeks. Um, so we reckon that by the, uh, by January, the substantive hearing will call in court, and it will be a two-day hearing, and it'll be public as well, so people can actually sit, they can actually listen into that as well. So just to recap, so you reckon this, this hearing will take place sometime in January, perhaps? That's what we're expecting. We were, it's four weeks from the last hearing to exchange different written arguments, and then there's a two a two week grace period, and that's going to bring us to Christmas New Year. So we expect it to be one of the first cases back after the New Year. That's because obviously you get that break where there's nothing happening in the court as well. So we're saying mid January is a good estimate for where we want to be. They are folks. There's a date for your day mid January. Um, the last the last year was effectively I know enough of the time wasting. Let's you know let's get this going so to speak. So. Yeah, um, we're looking. We're looking forward to it, that's for sure. Um, it's all it's game on now. Seems to have caused a bit of a panic um, with the unionist press uh, because uh, it was reported in a number of them. So, in fact, we actually know for a fact that it has been reported in the United States by Bloomberg as well. In fact, uh, I believe they're actually in the process of writing a, a rather large article uh, about it at the moment as well. So, at the end of the day, the the case itself, uh, yes, it'll bring clarification to the Constitution. Yes, it, could, it will hopefully establish the precedent that a Section 30 order is not required. 
but at the same time as well, it's also shaking the branches as well. And it, I would hope, my greatest hope for it is that it shows people out there that listen, it does, you don't need to be a high convoluting uh, politician with you know massive resources to to try and steer and push and try and advance the cause. All you need is really is yourself, a laptop, computer, or a you know, or a f- tablet and your own voice, and also sparing your blushes. You need tenacity. You need to oh, yeah. stick with it. Yeah, when lots of other people are saying to you, "Give up, don't do it. It's a hassle. Who the heck are you?" Blah blah yeah. blah. I don't have those words in my vocabulary. I never <laughs> have. Ten years of being consistently kicked by the system due to ill health and other matters as well that uh, in my private life to do with with my health and also my mother effectively falling through every single crack on the system on the way down it gave me a vision of exactly how bad things can get and because I knew a bit about I was fairly well versed in the basics of law that led to actually trying to help people things like DWP claims and all that sort of stuff and when you've been to that dark place and I have absolutely no qualms in calling it the dark place because you'll never understand how bad the system is until you see exactly how bad, badly people that are treated, that are normally hidden from sight by the same system. It, it'll either do one or two things to you, it'll either break you or it will turn your mind to a, you know what, screw this, going yeah. down swinging attitude. And that's effectively where it came from. You could very well say that this case is being brought by me because I'm a product of the very same system. But it's the realization that, in actual fact, there are ways that people, the ordinary person can can really try to shift things on. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing like the smell of panic in the morning when it comes to politicians when they realize because our system, our entire system, the entire system in the UK is predicated on this mission to ensure that the electorate never realize how much power they actually have. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same model that's actually used by the police, and I shouldn't say that. A police officer explained it brilliantly to me. He says to me, we're outnumbered by about 10,000 to one. Our entire system of policing works on the basis that the public has trust in us yeah. and that we have the, the, the people secede to our authority. They acquiesce to our authority. But if they suddenly turn around and says, you know, you know what? No, I'm not doing that anymore. We'd be royally... <laughs> was the words he used and it's exactly the same with government exactly the same with this country politicians and pundits that believe that you know that's how they work by trying to hide from you that you are more powerful than you actually yeah. think you are yeah. I'm reminded too of that, that old saying I think they use it particularly in the US about if the law is on your side argue the law if the law is not on your side but the facts are argue the facts if neither the law nor the facts on your side, shout and, and don't let the other guy come back. I think one of the best ones I ever heard was um, the, the TV programme, Boston Legal. He's, uh, um, it was a, just a lawyer. He says, uh, there's three things you should know about me. I'm 100% vindictive and I don't play fair. And the guy responded back to him. That's two things. So see, I'm not playing fair already. <laughs> um, but that's the thing. That the, the only trick that's out there is that that is a mind trick. It's a shell. It's a, The entire system in this country is based on us freely giving everything over to the politicians and just saying, yeah, you represent us. And 
that balance completely relies on us acquiescing to the system. But if we turn around and say, no, no, I'm not doing this anymore, take your system and shove it, suddenly there's this mass panic. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping that comes out of this case that people do realise, actually, you know, one person can do X, Y, Z, can shift things this way and that way. Imagine what would happen if two of us got together, or three, or 50, or 1,000, or 50,000. And I genuinely believe that if that's the one thing that comes out of this, it, it, you know, it tries and instills that sort of opinion in people that, you know, in actual fact, it doesn't matter who you are, you can actually make a bit of a difference to the, the entire thing as a whole, then great. I, I gather in the recent past you, you've reproached Laura Kuhnberg, is that the case? I've made a formal complaint to the BBC Director General about a reporting. Is that what you're referring yes. to? I've put one complaint forward with regards to the the authority that the BBC reporters seem to use when they turn around and say with great gusto that a Section 30 order is here's the legal opinion. And because it's one myth that is perpetuated by the UK media is that a Section 30 order is required. It's not required. It's up to the UK government to prove that it is required. As far as we're concerned, it's not. So yeah, I raised the issue with the BBC Director General about Laura Koonsberg. She doubled down. She doubled down by putting another article up that referred to legal opinion that they'd got which was actually three months before we initiated the legal action. And it quoted Philip Sim. There's just one downside to that. Philip Sim's on the mailing list for the press releases for this court case. (laughs) So she kind of shot herself in the foot there. So yeah, we'll we'll see what comes out of that. But my attitude is, no, it isn't. You know, it's not required. And the reason no, it's not required is because, well, here's the court summons and here's the closed record. And we know it's not required because our our, our, uh, court summons says so. So... Is there anything you want to leave us with? Any thoughts about crowdfunders or anything else? That- when it comes to the crowdfunding at the moment, we're, we're fi- fine on that front just now. I've been very clear on that. I won't ask about crowdfunding okay. until we need it. Simple as that. All I would say with regards to the case itself is just keep watching this space, but not just watching the case itself. Watch what's happening round about the case. Because one thing that this case is doing is shaking a lot of branches and there's a lot of things that are, are coming to the, the fray and coming to the fold. So pay close attention to it. Um, but apart from that, um, really, it's simply a case of waiting till uh, the hearing. Uh, I'll be making my usual updates online. Well, there you are, folks. If you want to know how the court case is going, then Martin's the guy to, to be in touch with. There's also Forwarders One, the, the, web, the website. There's lots of great information there. And again... If anyone watching this wants to contest or challenge, contact me, john at cliche.com. You're welcome to come on the TNT show. Martin has been very candid. He's been tenacious. I think it's been the best performance all around. But other people might not agree. In that case, the TNT place, the Nation Talks, is your space to, to say what you need to say. Let me end by thanking you most sincerely, Martin, for giving up your time. Much appreciated. and. The best of luck. Thanks again. Good night, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thanks, John. Take it easy.